So, because context is king, uh, let's bring in what has happened thus far in the chapter. We, we left off last week looking at two different uh, controversies concerning the Sabbath. Uh, and, of course, Jesus was pulled into this by the Pharisees who have uh, beef with Jesus. If you're not familiar with that figure of speech, it's very Hawaiian. You got beef. Um, not where's the beef, but... There's problems between us, and uh, they are trying to stir trouble with him. And in both of the, the instances, Jesus pointed out the fatal flaws in how the Jews had interpreted and observed the Sabbath law from the book of Exodus. In both instances, Jesus proved that mercy had been set aside, had been pushed aside, in order for them to keep this strict tradition uh, which really was contrary to the heart of God, right? Uh, and his original purpose for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was provided for the Jews to give them rest from their work. It wasn't intended to give the Jews an opportunity to ignore or overlook the needs of uh, their fellow man, their suffering. Um, as good as the Sabbath was, resting on it did not supersede the duty that we have, the duty they had to go to the aid of their neighbor. And you remember the story about, he says, anybody in this room knows that if on the Sabbath their sheep fell into a pit, they would go and get that sheep out of the pit. How much more than ought you do that? Ought you to do that for your fellow man? And so that's the second controversy. Jesus had, following those comments, he healed a man with a withered hand, and that was actually in violation of rabbinical law, okay? And even though the law of God did not forbid it, but actually encouraged it, the Pharisees began to conspire in how they might destroy Jesus. And their intention was not to destroy his reputation, okay? They've been working at that for months now, and they've been unsuccessful. So now it's plan B. Uh, but neither are they trying to just simply silence him or get him to go away. Uh, they're not trying to cancel him on social media. Uh, what they want to do is they want to kill him. They're out for, for blood. And um, just for violating, <clears throat> well, not just for violating the Sabbath tradition, but because he also was, had shamed them publicly, uh, not just on one occasion. And... Um, but yeah, the dangers, uh, I think that we can uh, kind of um, not really consider the dangers of violating tradition. How many guys have been the, uh, the transgressor of tradition? You're afraid to raise your hand. There's no tradition here that you have to be afraid of. Yeah, tradition historically, uh, or historically rather tradition and even theology, has a way of being elevated to a place that has more authority than the scriptures themselves. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church uh, certainly gives more authority to their tradition uh, than they do to the scriptures. Many liturgical churches admire their liturgy uh, more than they do like essential doctrines of the scriptures. Um, and anyone who dares object or challenge the value of those traditions of a particular liturgy can be ostracized. Now, not everyone is willing to kill someone else to protect traditions. But in the context where we're at, this was most definitely what they wanted to do. Okay, tradition to them was absolutely sacred, and uh, they would guard it with their blood. So let's see what Jesus does 
in response to their conspiring. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be in the New King James Version. Matthew 12, we'll pick it up in verse 15. I'll read through to verse 32. We're going to try to cover all this today. I wanted to bring verse 37 in because it captures more of the context, but I I don't have the skill set to do all of that. But when Jesus knew it, that is, that they were seeking to destroy him, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Do you love that passing statement? Healed them all. Let's just move on. (laughs) Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And... If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, what began with a little debate ended with a strict warning. Jesus is no longer playing around. The words of the Pharisees have just gone too far. And Lord, I pray that you would use all of this to teach us, to instruct us. And um, Lord, just to better consider the nature of who you are, what you came to accomplish in the earth. Lord, your majesty, your authority. And Lord, we do pray for, for Phyllis, for her daughter, for the baby. Lord, all the housing stuff, health Lord, there's more than any of us can manage, but Lord, you are good, and your providence is everlasting, and your wisdom, Lord, unsearchable. We pray, God, that you would just intervene, and Lord, that you would bring health and strength, and Lord, I know that all of it is just so overwhelming to them. I pray that you would provide housing and transportation. Lord, just watch after them, we pray, and uh, we look forward, Lord, to a good report. And, and Lord, for Phyllis to be home so that she can rest. But just be with her. Grant her your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Well, if you would return to verse 15, following this little conspiracy, it says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. So when Jesus knew about the conspiracy to kill him, now when it comes to the Pharisees, uh, I haven't decided what you know, really irks them more. Uh, that, that Jesus bucked their traditions and did it publicly, or that he stole their popularity and shamed them publicly. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what uh, was worse for them. But Jesus departed from the synagogue, and it says that great multitudes followed him. Uh, this was the same multitude, of course, the people of Israel that had formerly admired the Pharisees, and considered them to, to really be the, the bee's knees. I mean, they were the, the superstars of Israel. They were the ones that they looked up to and admired. And um, so you have this crowd that used to follow them, looked up to them, but now they're ignoring them and they're following Jesus. This is more than they could handle. And because of the combination of all these things, they just envied Jesus. They hated him to death. But sadly, it's not because they cared about the well-being of the people, physically, spiritually, emotionally. The Pharisees only cared for what had been taken from them, and that was popularity, accolades, the attention of the people. Uh, As we'll look at later, they they loved to go down into public, into the marketplace, and just listen to the way that the people complimented them and talked about them, how they thought they were so spiritual and so wise and They just love to, you know, harvest the praises of the people. We don't want to underestimate the danger of stealing someone's fame, right? Yeah. What happened in Texas lately? Wasn't there a political shooting, a rival politician? How dare you steal somebody's popularity? But, you know, Jesus, you know, he cared deeply for the people. He, He wasn't there to be in competition with the Pharisees. He was just striving for the souls of men in spite of them, in spite of the Pharisees. But then, you know, the people themselves, they're, they're finicky, they're fickle. And, and they had all kinds of different motives for following Jesus, some good, some bad. You know, some were just along for the show. And there was quite the show, wasn't there? There was all kinds of things going on that would attract people. They were being entertained by miracles. They were being entertained by how Jesus was engaging with the Pharisees, you know, challenging their authority. Everybody loves a good fight, especially if it has to do with a nobody who's challenging the authorities, right? Who, who loves a good fight, honestly? Um, two of us raised our hand. The rest of you lie, okay? Other people followed Jesus because out of just purely selfish reasons, you know, uh, just seeking him for healing, and then they were done with him. And in fact, I wonder, you know, it says that Jesus healed all of them. So after Jesus, for three and a half years, heals basically all the sick people, what use do they have for him except to crucify him? That's really what it boils down to later on, doesn't it? When they're done with him, they're just away with him. Others, of course, followed him because they were curious Well, others were convinced that indeed he was the son of God, but as we go through the gospels, that number appears to be very small, very small, sadly. But in spite of all this, Jesus knew about everybody's motives. He continued to minister to them, to heal all of them, and of course, that only drew more people. 
And it says, yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, we'll get to that prophecy in a minute. Um, So he's warning them. Things were certainly heating up with the Pharisees. He, as we've said, he stole their popularity. Uh, More recently, he's trampled on their sabbatical tradition. And, uh, And Jesus, though, in all of this, he wasn't, his goal wasn't to provoke their wrath. He wasn't into that. He wanted to keep things quiet, keep things subtle. So he did warn the people to keep the miracles and all that was happening on the down low. Okay, now how long has he been doing this for? How successful has he been? You know, the reason he's not successful is because he's not their Lord. He's just somebody that is performing miracles. He's entertaining. He's all this stuff. But because they don't revere him, they don't look up to his lordship, they don't obey him. And so the word continues to get out. The crowds continue to grow. And as we know already, people, the word has spread even beyond the borders of Israel. And people are coming from Phoenicia and the east side of the river. It's getting, he just can't avoid all of the attention. But he attempts to keep it subtle anyway. <clears throat> this happens to be in fulfillment of something that Isaiah said. This prophecy Uh, from Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Okay. Um, Now this clearly, uh, of course, is, is God is speaking about his chosen servants. And of course, Jesus is the servant of God in whom he's well pleased on whom he has put his spirit, okay? Uh, real quick, just in this text here, notice the three persons in the passage. You see him? God is speaking to his servant, Jesus, upon whom he has placed his spirit. That's a, clearly a Trinitarian passage, isn't it? Making a distinction between all the, the persons of the Trinity. Now, the passage ends with <clears throat> the declaration that this servant will declare justice to the Gentiles. Well, that can't be the fulfilled. Uh, be, that can't be what is being fulfilled in Matthew 12, because of course Jesus isn't currently with the Gentiles; he's with the Jews. Now Matthew has quoted this part of the prophecy uh, just to keep things in context. If he quoted verse two of Isaiah 42 uh, only, it would be difficult to kind of tie this into a messianic connection. But in context, uh, it's clearly speaking of the Messiah. Reaching out to the Gentiles is something that uh, Jesus mostly does through the ministry of the apostles and the church. Uh, We'll get to that later, of course. That's the book of Acts. Verse 18 and 21 will be fulfilled later. He goes on. He says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is what Matthew is saying was being fulfilled by Jesus at this moment. Jesus warned the crowds to keep things down on the down low so not to provoke the Pharisees, which would just uh, come to an unnecessary conflict. Okay? Now, the statements <clears throat> should all be taken as a whole from Isaiah. You know, quarreling and crying out, uh, are, they're essentially the same. The idea behind crying out is a quarrel that depicts shouting, shouting. It's a shouting match between two, two people. That sort of thing, 
Isaiah is saying, would not be heard in the streets by Jesus. Okay? Isaiah foretold that when the Messiah comes, he won't have shouting matches with his opponents. That's just not his style. Now, it's not that Messiah wouldn't be heard at all in the streets. It's that he won't be screaming at his enemies or having a senseless argument. And as we look at Jesus' arguments, they're completely reasonable, aren't they? They're, they're full of logic. Uh, they're even Socratic in nature. Not that he was a fan of Socrates. Uh, Socrates didn't invent anything. He just discovered ways to communicate, right? Please say amen. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So Jesus' teaching certainly would be heard. Well-fashioned arguments against destructive heresies and traditions that would lead people astray. But you wouldn't catch Messiah arguing to preserve his own pride or shouting down his opponent. Okay? That's not his thing. Jesus was the opposite of the Pharisees. <clears throat> it says that, Isaiah said, a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. I like that last statement, till he sends forth justice to victory. So this issue of the bruised reed, the smoking flax, of course, these are figures of speech common to the day of uh, Isaiah. And what it does is it refers to, you know, the gentle nature of someone that nurtures. Okay, the Messiah would come with compassion for the hurting, offering mercy to those who are at their wit's end. In many ways, this was just really opposite to the attitude of the day. Um, and really because of the way that the Jews had so rigidly interpreted the law of Moses. And the Pharisees were the ultimate expression of this. They, the, to the Pharisees, the people were an inconvenience. And quite often when the people had an illness or a disability, they believed that the person must have done something to deserve it. There was some sin that, had, that was the cause of their ailment, and God was giving them their just reward. And if God was seeing to it that they were being punished for their sin, they didn't want to get in the way by helping them. I didn't do anything. Is it me? Okay, I'll let you deal with it. All oh, the sound guys are running around. What's going on? I love these guys. These poor guys. I always thank them, by the way. They, they take the heat for everything. So the Pharisees were that way, but the same understanding, because of you know, years of Jewish tradition, uh, the people had picked up on this same kind of superstition. You know, when Jesus and, and the disciples, they came upon a blind man in John 9, and the disciples looked to Jesus and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What a terrible way to interpret the world. Yeah. And Jesus said, neither. And then later the Pharisees interviewed the guy about receiving his sight, and they accused him of being completely born in sin. And by their statement, they were not simply affirming the doctrine of inherited sin from Adam, but they're saying that he had been punished with blindness for some sin of his parents. They conceived you in sin, whether out of wedlock or something. They're, they're, they're implying something, some kind of sin. And I just think how sad for people who were in a bad way to just think all because of rabbinical tradition that they were being punished by God when they were just sick because they live in a broken world. And then the people thinking that because they were sick, by God, uh, because of sin, so God was punishing them, so we, we dare not show them compassion. Just a terrible thing in their culture. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were always ready to break a bruised reed. Speaking of people, 
or to quench a smoking flax. It was just more convenient than caring for the hurting. But Jesus came on the scene, and the scripture says that his gut was wrenching with compassion. And we saw the crowds, and, and the Greek says he, he had splagna, his guts just turning inside of him because the, the people were hurting, they were lost, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he, he, he wanted to minister to them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So he went out of his way to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourned. He went without food, he went without sleep and privacy just so that he could minister to the people. He's just the complete opposite of the Pharisees. He would splint the bruised reed, as it were, so it would heal. And instead of quenching smoking flax, he would, he would fan it into flame again. He would revive it. That's that figure of speech. Earlier, Jesus said, that's in, in, consistent with this prophecy. He says, come to me, all who are heavy, or all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All this in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, what the Messiah would be like. And then the verse here ends with, till he sends forth justice to victory. I love that really sovereign statement that God's justice will eventually be victorious in the world. Amen? And when there's no more suffering, and when there's no longer the possibility of suffering, listen carefully, there's no longer going to be a need for compassion. If there's no suffering, that particular virtue will will go into neutral. That is a beautiful thing, don't you think? The world right now is filled with the need for compassion. But when Christ returns and fixes everything, that need will be removed and that virtue, that divine virtue of compassion will be passive. There'll just be no need for it. What a day that will be. No longer a need for mercy. All will be well. Goes on and says, and in his name, Gentiles will trust. Now this prophecy, this part of the prophecy is important because the Jews believed that all of the promises of redemption were only for them. Think of racism today. The Pharisees of old and those given to, to rabbinical tradition were among some of the most racist people in the world. And when you go to Israel today or to New York and you mingle among the ultra-Orthodox, it's the exact same spirit, the exact same spirit. It's pharisaical, it's racist. They thought, they believed that the Messiah would come and crush the Gentile dogs and fill the pit of hell with their bodies. But the gospel, as Isaiah predicted, would not be limited to the Jews. It would be for whosoever. And then today, of course, the Gentiles make up the vast majority of the church. And here we are. I don't even, do we even have Jews among us? A bunch of Gentiles. <laughs> the Gentiles have trusted in his name. Let's move on. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man spoke and saw. So this is not natural blindness. He's, he's not mute by some accident. This is, this is being caused by demonic forces. And so Jesus evicts the demon. And then the crowd... They respond this way, and all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Notice, this is the second time that 
a connection has been made between miracles and the son of David. The blind men were the first to make this connection back in 927 when they said, son of David, have mercy on us, meaning heal us, son of David. And now, finally, the crowds are beginning to make this connection. But the question, uh, as it's stated in the original language, is somewhat left neutral. Is it possible? Is it not possible? What's going on here? And they may have been stated that way because they were sort of afraid to declare him as the Messiah because the Pharisees were present. But the question was asked publicly. That's not keeping things on the down low, okay? The Pharisees were present, and this is a problem. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. You know, have you ever been on the bad side of someone so that every good you do is bad? Church splits happen like this all the time. Every good deed scrutinized, every motive questioned. You're demonized in absolutely every conversation that person has. And these kinds of people, they, they feel so righteous and no matter the damage done, they feel vindicated. This was the Pharisees. Jesus could do no good even when he performed the ultimate good. He just did something good. And they are absolutely critical about it. So when they heard the crowd saying anything positive about Jesus, especially that he might be the son of David, the Messiah, they immediately cast this dark shadow over it. No, 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 no. This is no godly miracle. This man does this by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In other words, Jesus, this fellow works for the devil. His tricks are demonic. This is the work of Satan, everyone. Now, I'm sure that throughout Jesus' ministry, he ignored a lot of statements from the Pharisees. But this was more than just a jab. This was blasphemy. And Jesus couldn't let it go. So it says, but when Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand It's also true for churches, right? Unity is the great necessity for the success of any institution or any relationship. The division unchecked will ultimately lead to destruction. And Jesus points out here that the same is true for Satan's kingdom and his agenda that he has for the world of man. Without unity, even Satan is doomed. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand? So if Satan is using Jesus to cast out demons, as the Pharisees are suggesting, Satan would just be working against himself. And and they are saying Satan is using Jesus to remove the demons who are actually advancing Satan's kingdom. So using Jesus to destroy his own kingdom, if that is true, uh, how will the demons react to Satan's betrayal? See, this would tear his kingdom apart. Now, I think there are quite a few moments where the Pharisees in public were thinking, should have thought of that before I opened my mouth, you know. But Jesus isn't done. Their comments deserve more attention. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So if Jesus is using Satan's power to do damage to Satan's kingdom by casting out his demons, 
By whose power then are the sons of the Pharisees casting out demons? Now, the sons of the Pharisees is probably a reference to either their disciples or to the Pharisees as a class of people, the Pharisaical class itself. Now, Jesus' statement, of course, is it's completely hypothetical. He's saying, you know, let's just assume, let's assume that there's some validity to your argument, that I am casting out Satan's demons by Satan's power, which is ridiculous and demonstrably false. By whose power then are your disciples doing it? That too seems hypothetical. Uh, For Jesus is not casting out demons by Satan's power, and the Pharisees, they don't cast demons out at all. I think they would love to claim that they had or they were, but they weren't. Verse 23 bears this out. When Jesus cast out the demon, the people were wondering if Jesus was the son of David. They had never assumed that any of the Pharisees were the the son of David because they never witnessed them cast out a demon, right? They responded this way because they'd never seen anything like this. The Pharisees weren't doing these things. They weren't delivering a man of demon possession and then causing him to see and to speak. The people were blown away. So even they demonstrated that the Pharisees were not casting out demons. If the Pharisees had cast them out, and they were doing it by the power of God, and if Jesus was doing it by the power of Satan, which is ludicrous, wouldn't they both be accomplishing the same ends? Damage to Satan's kingdom? But if the Pharisees were doing it by the power of Satan, and Jesus was doing it by the power of God, wouldn't they be securing God's desire? Harm to Satan's kingdom? Again, this is just completely silly. If demons are being cast out and harm is being done to Satan's kingdom, as everyone just witnessed, it's being done by the Spirit of God. It is. And therefore, when the sons of the Pharisees evaluate all of this logically and theologically, they will conclude that these Pharisees who are currently attacking Jesus are mistaken. They should have kept their mouth shut. But Jesus wants to make sure it's really shut. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, but if. um, The conditional clause, if, uh, is a fulfilled condition in the original language. So Jesus meant, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah, logically, Theologically, there's just, there's no other view that fits. Jesus, by casting out demons by the spirit of God, he's saying in some sense has brought the kingdom of God with him, with him. So listen, a superior kingdom is necessary to subdue another. Isn't that true? Yeah. And whether Jesus, or wherever Jesus is rather, there is a manifestation of that particular kingdom. Wherever the king is, the power of the kingdom is present. And and that's what explains lepers being healed, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and so forth, nature submitting to him and demons obeying him. And so to illustrate this fact, Jesus says this. He says, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? I love the illustration. The strong man is Satan. The strong man is Satan. The house is the person who is possessed by a demon. Jesus is the one who enters the strong man's house 
binds him and then plunders his house. That is, he liberates people from demonic power. A superior kingdom has come with the king. Jesus is stronger than the strong man, and he's come to plunder what the strong man has taken captive and what the strong man is trying to destroy. And because Jesus is king of this far superior kingdom that will eventually rule over all other kingdoms, he can say this, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You see, the myth of neutrality resolved. Okay, there is no neutrality. If you're not with Christ, if you're not gathering to him, if you're not for Christ, if you're not subject to his lordship, Jesus says, you are against me. You're against me. There's no middle ground. You're either with or against. There are two kingdoms and two kingdoms only. He says, there's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom of God. No one can play both sides or neither side. It's just one or the other. Now, every one of us was born into the kingdom of Satan, right? As the scriptures declare. And if anyone is to leave that kingdom behind, they must be born again into the kingdom of God, Jesus says in John 3. It's like light. It, it is either emitting or it is not. It can't emit light and not emit light simultaneously. It's either, it either is or it isn't. There's no neutrality. No, no one can say, I'm not on any side. I think that in our culture, there's this idea of neutrality, but there's just no such thing. Those in the kingdom of Satan are those that have not come to Christ through repentance and faith. It is simple as that. That's how simple it is. We're citizens of the kingdom of Satan by natural birth as a result of Adam's sin. And the only way we can become citizens of the kingdom of Christ is a supernatural birth to be born from above that comes through repentance and faith in Christ. As Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16.31. Paul says you will be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and you will be conveyed to the kingdom of light. And he says, and Christ will redeem you by his blood and forgive you of all sins, Colossians 1.13 and 14. But you must gather with him. He says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is getting serious, isn't he? Yeah. Now, speaking a word against someone is blasphemy. Okay. The term we use today is slander. It means to speak evil about someone, to assassinate their character. In the context, Jesus is referring to what is called the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He mentions it because it just occurred in the text. Jesus just cast out a demon by the Holy Spirit, and the Pharisees said that he did it by the power of Satan. They attributed the Holy Spirit's work to the devil. They said that what Jesus just did by the Holy Spirit was satanic. That's blasphemy. It gets worse. Jesus says that those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not ever be forgiven, not in this age and not in the age to come. That's bad. That's bad. So how many guys have questions about the unpardonable sin? You ever have someone come to you and they're concerned that they committed the unpardonable sin? 
It's happened many times with me. Pastor, I think, I, I'm, and they're just so concerned that they committed the unpardonable sin. The question is, how exactly is the unpardonable sin committed or by whom or what kind of person is it committed by? In the context, the sin was committed by the Pharisees. What difference does that make? Well, the Pharisees were the Bible scholars of the day. And they had for quite some time now been given infallible evidence that Jesus is the Messiah upon whom the scriptures say that God placed his spirit. They had infallible evidence before them. We just looked at that back in verse 18 where Matthew quoted Isaiah 42. Jesus has demonstrated that he's the son of David according to his human nature, genealogy, and that he's the son of God according to his divine nature as he's fulfilled countless prophecies, he's healed lepers, he's performed miracle after miracle, he's commanded nature, and on and on it goes. These men, contrary to all of the evidence, and out of their hateful pride, have rejected Christ, and they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin is committed when someone who possesses undeniable knowledge, but contrary to all of the evidence, slanders the Holy Spirit. You get it? That will never, ever be forgiven. And if that sounds grave to you, then it's been communicated well. That's exactly how Jesus meant it. It is the severest warning. It's meant to be sobering. And as D.A. Carson, he makes a very good point. He says, the truth of the unforgivable sin is declared by the one who has the authority to forgive sin. And the one who has the authority to forgive sin also has the authority to withhold forgiveness. And for those who have the undeniable evidence of Christ's identity before them, but slander the Holy Spirit's witness of him, they will never be forgiven. According to the Savior, they cannot be saved. They cannot. Now, as I said, people have come to me very concerned that they've committed the unpardonable sin. But if somebody is concerned that they've done it, I doubt they've committed it. Okay? How worried did the Pharisees appear to be? Not at all. Those who hate the Holy Spirit enough to blaspheme him, they're not concerned about what he thinks. Okay? I would say that men like Christopher Hitchens, the, the hateful British atheist who looked deeply into the evidence of Christ but died a hateful blasphemer fits the bill. Okay? He, he died a hateful, evil person. I would think that Charles Templeton who wrote Farewell to God. I mean, he entertained the Christian faith. He promoted it. He preached it, but then left the faith and gave terrible reasons for leaving. He died and went to his place, okay, unforgiven. So I do not believe, um, if you're more wondering, that this is possible for someone who is actually regenerate by the Holy Spirit. I don't see how someone could speak against the Spirit by whom they were born again. And there's no evidence in the scriptures that someone born of the Spirit can blaspheme the Spirit. There's this text in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There's this self-confirming thing going on with the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And that doesn't mean that you can't be rebellious and, and say stupid things 
uh, that you can't sin and all of that. I mean, we know better. We know ourselves. We know the history of God's people in the scriptures. But can someone blaspheme the spirit of God that has regenerated their soul? There's no evidence for that anywhere in the scriptures. Everything in the scriptures is to the contrary. There are people that are well-informed, that hate Christ. They're very capable of blasphemy. There are people that come here, I think as Hebrews 6 says, they, they taste, they, they get to experience the benefits of Christ, his people. They get a taste, as it were, and then they fall away and it says there's no way to recover them. It seems to be consistent with this idea of, not the idea, but the doctrine of the unpardonable sin. Okay. But I will say that if you're here today and you're struggling with guilt and you think perhaps that you've done something that is beyond the reach of God's mercy, I want to have a conversation with you after service. If you're at that place, you are recoverable. You understand? You're not beyond his reach. And so I would love to pray with you, to encourage you, to build you up. Um, I'm not going to overlook your sin, but as we've talked about, mercy looks through sin into the person. Uh, I want to see you come out of sin and repent and then walk closely with Christ and his church. Amen? Okay, go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. We'll get into the tongue next week. Nobody here has a problem with their tongue. (laughs) Let's pray. And then we'll keep worshiping.